Yeah, look at it you. It just you, did. You should have seen there was like stars in your eyes, I'm right? I'm so happy. You were happy there. <laughs> Welcome to the Metacast. I'm Josh Anderson. And I'm Bob Galen. Ooh, yes you are. Yes I am. That was an awkward intro for you. It, no, it wasn't. I it just, was. I was trying to mix it up. Oh. I'm trying to be a little bit... I don't. We want, have a mixer, so you should mix it up. I should mix... Exactly. So I don't want to be the same old, same old. I'm very predictable. You've noticed that. We both are. Over, oh, we are, actually. <laughs> we're, like, we're like an old married couple. Yeah, that's terrible. But we get into these same patterns, so I try. It's, it's, a, it's a vain effort, because I, I, I'm really the same. But I try to mix it up every once in a while, Josh. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about architectural stories and how product owners and teams can wrap that into the Scrum process and not have it feel like this weird outlier. Because... If you don't, sometimes they don't get done and they don't get done well. Yep. So trying to help everybody out there manage that stuff. So could we generalize this to be, I'm not trying to make it to twist the topic, but uh, could it be any story, not just architectural, but any story that's not functional? So could it be like a test, if if we're building test automation frameworks, it would be a story to write plumbing for test automation yeah something like that a refactoring a refactoring story so anything that has technical ramifications to it right yeah okay i like that cool not bug fixes so there's functional stuff like build me this feature yeah and then there's bugs repair stuff i'm not talking about that it's like the technical plumbing or technical investment stuff right cool so, so should we talk about that now? Well, I think we could, Would you kick it off? It's, we your, have it's, to. it's your idea. Oh, okay. So one of the things that we've been struggling with, and, and I've struggled with a couple of times in the past, is how to effectively manage that and who's the product owner. Is like the architect the product owner? Is somebody else the product owner? Or is the product owner the product owner? What's the right way to manage that? Because we as teams and groups of people, we like those patterns. We like the comfortable nature. So how do you execute on those? Well, not from a technical perspective, but from the process itself and have it flow properly. And you feel like, yeah, we actually did that right. I mean, when I was a channel advisor, and and so my recommendations come from my experience sometimes. And one and I get stuck on them, so I need to challenge myself because what works at company A doesn't always work at company B. Right. But one of the things we did there that worked really well is we had technical work. We were actually uh, replacing a database in a, pro- in a couple products, and we were moving. And so this was a major architectural initiative going from something to SQL Server or whatever. And so it was lots and lots of refactoring stories, architectural stories. And our initial response was to dump it in the lap of the product owners, the, the, these people who were product managers. Uh, so they were non-technical, and that didn't last very long. Right. They they couldn't they couldn't write them, they couldn't write acceptance tests for them, they couldn't sign off on them. They didn't just feel comfortable. I mean, they tried, but they couldn't feel comfortable with it. So what we did what what we did is uh, functional managers became, we coined this term of a technical product owner. Mm-hmm. And then we assigned programmers, not not anyone, not the architects, but functional like guys like you, would become the technical product owner, 
and then they shepherded those those stories through through execution. Uh, they partnered with the functional product owner, so we created this pairing discussion where the the functional product owner was the prime; they owned all of the stories. So they had to the technical product owner had to sell the value of the technical stuff to the product owner. Right. But and but they were a partnership, and uh, and they worked together. Uh, but the technical product owner then guided the team into what like what the acceptance test would look like, what done, what quality decisions like architectural decisions would be, and that worked beautifully actually. So, did you drive it more towards the functional product owners eventually acquire the knowledge to take over more of that, or was there always a pretty equal balance between the two? There was always an equal balance, but we set it up so that the functional manager, when I said the functional product owner was always the prime. So they could say no. They could say, I'm not willing to invest in that. And it was the technical product owner's job to convince them that it had it made business sense or to convert it into business sense. Like what is the value from a business point of view? Right. So we, we didn't want we didn't want technology driving the scrum model. We wanted value driving the scrum model. But but they had equal respect for each other. I mean I think that fu- that feature f- product owner uh, they they were friends. They were colleagues. They they learned to trust each other and to trust the decisions. Um, for demos and things, we we set it up so that the functional product owner could always explain why we're doing the technical stuff. They didn't know the technical details, but they weren't clueless. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't just say talk to Bob. Right? They they sort of knew the big picture. So they knew the they, they had to know the big picture. They had to be able to present it in a sprint review. Or if an executive stopped them and said, why are you doing this? Why, why have you spent 40% of the sprint on that? They could at least have an intelligent answer. How does that sound? That sounds very similar to where we're ending up. So we started off with architects. Or we have an architect who he was the product owner. And that worked for a lot of things. Some of the problems that we've had is... Architecturally, it made sense, but was it the right thing for the product? Of not having that that product owner view is where we we did good, but not great. So we're really trying to connect those two to ensure that we build the right thing architecturally. Yep. But also, to your point of having the prime of having the functional product owner say no of uh, yep. that, yeah, that's cool, and I understand why we do it like that, but we don't need that. We're exactly. not going to do that. We had tension between them, and it, it. So I'm not describing it, Metacasters. I mean, I'm describing it, but it worked. It, it, we sort of stumbled into this thing, and it worked beautifully. There was one, there was one pair where there was a little bit of personality conflict, and we had to sort of work through that. But in general, the, this sort of worked really well. The people sort of aligned with this. Um, we got the work done, the technical work done. Uh, so my bias, I actually wrote a blog post maybe within the last year or so, and I think the title of it was Technical Product Ownership. And I talk about so we should link to that. Yeah, so we we can. It it really is. It's describing this uh, channel advisor ish thing that we did, and because I like it, and in my coaching, I try to I at least bring it up as an example to companies uh, because it it resonated so well with me. Now we did something different at Eye Contact. Do you want me to describe it? Yeah. So there, our CTO, uh, it was he created a technology backlog. Uh, and he had architects reporting to him. So Dave, David Roche was our CTO at iContact, and, and he was very technical. He was driving the architecture. 
uh, he had a team of architects that reported to him, and they were they were sort of not less on the teams and more so an architectural group, but they would do some work on the teams, maybe four or five. And what he would do is create this technology. So he would look down the road at refactoring. He would look down the road at new architecture, new tooling, uh, anything. And he would create this backlog. He would prioritize it. And then his job was to meet with the, the chief product owner, Michelle, right. and he would converge. He would merge this into what I would call the functional backlog. Uh, and then the teams would execute those. St so the product owners didn't really buy it. This was a different model right. where he injected these technical stories into the backlog. They would eventually, they, if, the, if Michelle, this, the chief product owner, bought them, they would eventually land in the laps of teams. Mm -hmm. And David had some say into what teams to target them in. Right, so he would do target. So as he described it, we had multiple teams. Right. So he would put some targeting logic in the story, so they would land in the right team or teams, and then his architects, then the teams would circle back during execution if they needed help from the architects, they would circle back and pull the architects in. And David, where it fell down it, it is uh, acceptance. Mm -hmm. There was no clear. The functional product owner signed off on them, but they didn't understand them at all. And David sort of left them hanging. And he actually complained later on because he lost track of what was done and what wasn't done, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. He, he didn't have the closed... It was hard to manage the backlog. It was hard to manage the closed loop nature of it. Like what's, what, he managed it on the, you know, the idea side and on the injection side, but on the how, is it, how are the things getting done, right. it struggled. Whereas the channel advisor model sort of helps with that because there is no, I mean, there's one person closing the loop. Yeah, but that's the whole top-down approach of thou shalt do this because I said so, and the product owners were just like, okay, whatever. And they, they, they had no investment into understanding and helping the, the team understand. And you saw, and we saw that. It, we sort of, I mean, and they respected, David was like a founder of the company, so. Yeah, probably super smart guy that super made smart, a lot of the right decisions and. Blah, blah, blah. But from an empowerment point of view, from an ownership point of view, and I think you put your finger on the failure of closing the loop. No one really owned closing the loop. Right. Because it wasn't theirs. It was, well, we're doing this because we're told to. And even David had this tendency of shiny object syndrome. So when it got close, he, he lost interest in it. Right, he was moving on to something else. He right, went, yeah. <laughs> down the backlog, so he he cared less about that stuff. Uh, but I th I do think there's merits in that from the point of view of. So what was nice about that is 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 having what a high level roadmap from a product point of view and a high level roadmap from a technology point of view and having David and Michelle merge it. Yeah, that was we didn't do that at Channel Advisor. That aspect there. Of, and making priority calls at that high level before it sort of flows into the teams, that w I think that was useful for us. It, it created some really nice, tense meetings above the story level. Right. So here, I'll walk you through something we just started doing, and it kind of sort of aligns with what you're talking about. So we have backlogs for all of our products. Products could be the product we're building that's customer-facing. A product could also be a service that works across our portfolio. So notifications. We need to send emails or SMS. We're going to write that once and have it consumable by right. everything that needs to do that. So that is a product with a backlog of features. Right. What we've been working to do is to take all of those, like I think of the 
of those as like decks of cards and we have to shuffle them together and yep. then put them in an uber priority order across all of those products yep. and that's something that we've, been, that we've been trying to do out in front of the squad so we don't they don't need to deal with that confusion we'll 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 work through that with the product owners and and, and trying to get to that what i'm calling the super backlog so this is everything for everybody that we need to do and handle that before it gets to the squad. So you're doing exactly, I mean, not exactly, but you, that's ex, that's what David was doing with Michelle and sort of doing that shuffling of the cards. Right. Having those sort of, not heated discussions, but those sort of balancing discussions of, you know, flow of technology versus flow of features. Right. Uh, and to your point, there's a, it's not just as easy as that. There are some technology points that are actually generalized components from a product point of view. Yeah. So having that discussion of do we do it once and share it or do we do it multiple times or do we take a multiple instance and create a shared component and, right. then, and then obsolete that. So that's strategy. You know what I'm saying? Functional strategy versus technology strategy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's value in that. What does a technology story look like? If you don't mind me taking a diversion. So I try and make it look as much like the other stories as possible. I try and keep them so in sync and similar with acceptance criteria as well. I've seen a lot of architects and non-product owners skimp on acceptance criteria because they we know what we need to know or whatever, and that's where things get lost. So I've found you have to work almost extra hard to ensure that stories are treated the same way when they're not born from a product owner. So I think you and I aligned. My emphasis is on, so I see people sometimes f try to force technical stories into the as a I want so that. Mm -hmm. And I try to talk yeah, about I don't. And I don't really care about that format. I care about it for function. I think it's more useful for functional stories. I think it's less useful for technical stories. So I'm like, don't worry about it. Try it for functional. Because it does have a, it, it does have the persona, right? It does have the user there, which is useful. It yeah. does have business value, but I think when it's a purely technical story, I almost coach people to say, you know, just write it, write what you're trying to achieve technically. Mm -hmm. But then I align with you. Then overinvest, so underinvest in the story, right? But overinvest in the acceptance criteria because you're going to get those rich sort of like, how do you test it? Test if it's a perform, how do you you know performance? Yeah. Well, then articulate the performance requirements as right. an acceptance test. Yeah. Uh, if it has multiple environments that it has to support. So I think technical stories like should have really rich acceptance criteria and detail. Like if you have five for a functional story, you might want to influence like 10 on average for a technical story. Yeah. Because you have that sort of technical guidance. That's your technical requirements. You're building them into the acceptance test. Yeah. And I've been made fun of in the past for, for the technical stories when I write the stories that I write as a system or as an architect or as a platform or as a something you're like well that's not a I'm like okay but that's the consumer of it so that which is why at the end of the day it, it's I'm not worried about that specific format do we have the content in there of what we need to do and that's generally yep. most rich in the acceptance criteria because that's that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where I found that a lot of times those stories are skimped on because oh well we know what we need to know and I, then there's no it yep it gets really loosey-goosey, and I found that those stories tend to linger on longer, and you have less clarity on, are we there yet? Do we know what we need to know? So to your point, you do have to overinvest at that point. Rem remind me, when we uh, post this Metacast, I have two links. 
One is to uh, technical product ownership. So in the links below, yeah, you will see. Yeah, and and then there's one on uh, technical user stories, and and I describe what I'm describing. I even have an example or two in there. Okay, cool. And I think you and I align pretty well. I mean, again, use use the format of as a if you want as yeah. a system or as a, as an API. Uh, but it really is the rich acceptance criteria. And I think I have a good example in the post that amplifies that. Uh, what else? Technical stories. So we talked about the product owner. So I'm a big fan of continually trying to work to enable and empower the product owner to own that as well. Not be hands-off of, oh, that's not my thing, that's somebody else's thing. But to dig in and work to understand that the clients or customers or whatever you call them might not be the end user, but it might be another product that you're building or a team or something like that. And put yourselves in those shoes and trying to find a true product backlog from the product perspective, not from the architectural technical of why would we do this? What value are we bringing? So you're really just saying you could have two streams, technical and functional, but the product owner really needs to own both of them. The one product owner... I am going to continue to push, push for us to get there. I know we might not, yeah. but that's my ultimate goal is that we continue to drive towards that. Well, even at Channel Advisor, that's why we had the Prime. I mean, we were trying to say you are the Prime was the product owner. Uh, then there was a technical product owner that helped, but really you had to. It was your backlog. Right. Right. It was your backlog. You, you have to somewhat understand it. And that relationship, they, they got more technical over time. Now, they were never going to, you know, and I, I appreciate your goal, but I'm using that example of replacing a database. There's no way yeah. There's no way that those our product owners there at that time with that example were going to be in a position where I, we had a guy, one of the functional managers that worked at Microsoft, for God's sakes, on SQL Server <laughs> right. for eight years. There's no way that PO was going to somehow suck up that sort of skill and that sort of technical experience. Right. But if you paint that vision of this is where we want to go, we know we might never get there, then you at least have folks striving towards that but and you don't not have the taking a step back. But you don't want the partitioning, like you said, oh, this isn't my, yeah. yeah, it's yours, it's not mine. Exactly. Right. That's what we were trying to do. But that's hard and that's scary because it's an unknown, so it, it takes intentional focus and effort to get there. I, I it doesn't agree. just magically happen. I would agree. The other thing with technical stories is it's not just the technical product owners. We also encourage the developers to write them. So if you think about I usually encourage the team to write the functional stories with the product owner. So it's not just their job to write them. The, the team can enhance them or update them or edit them right. and make them better. Uh, on the technical story side, I, I usually encourage the team. They're rich, those are richer opportunities for team members to weigh in. And so I want the team members to weigh in on acceptance criteria. As you're having design discussions about it in grooming, you would tend towards having some high-level design or trade-offs or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, then embed that in the story. So do you do that, or, or do you just have, like, an architect? Do you write them? Or is it a team function that writes them? So we end up... It... It generally starts within one of the chapters. So we have the front end and the back end chapter. So depending on where it is, usually the back end chapter. So we try and have someone from within the back end chapter own that service. So they take the initial stab on here are the stories. The yep. thing that we're trying to do is to get the 
product owner to be a part of that more. Historically, it hasn't been. That's the that's the tweak that we're trying to yep. make to yep. get that there because it was product owners are good at being product owners. Developers aren't always good at being product owners. Right. So you have to work pretty hard to make that work. So that's why I'm really pushing towards getting the two to work more closely together okay. that we'll get a better backlog for everybody at that point. Yeah. Um, so somebody within the chapter will own that service. I think that's fair. That, that's what I'm alluding to. I mean, that's a, that's a team member. I mean, it's a technical person that's right. sort of contributing. I just had this aha. What about UX? So would, would you have the same? So UX, I think you have a UX person or something. Yeah. So there's a stream of UX work. Would it would it take the same form? It should, yeah. So it would be technical UX stories. To me, UX is a chapter just like front end and back end. So there's someone, there's a group of people that are focused and responsible for ensuring that our user experience is good. Our front end chapter is responsible for taking what looks and is usable and turning that into the front end code to support that. And then the back so end. So let's is talk about functional streams. I just want to so there's an art there's a software architecture stream i'm mm -hmm. not trying to create an art uh, you know a, yeah. a, a structure but uh the, so from your point of view there would be qa that would come in potentially uh devops ux architecture all of those things are potential streams that could come in as technical stories yeah. okay so but you gave me a weird look just then so what what, what was just around that? the qa because we actually originally had a QA chapter that was separate and we realized we didn't like the separation of that so the front end chapter and the back end chapter are represented with QA folks in there okay. and it's not so this is how we do the front end from this is how we write the code this is how we test the code back ends the same thing so we've really yeah. focused to have that be we all own the quality not there's a separate group that owns the quality trying to get that to be quality is embedded in everything we do. I could see it. I could see having a separate QA chapter for like automation, is what like like automation like. But that automation is likely specific to that type of code, to that front end code, the back end code, which is what we've done. Is we've said in this front end chapter, we're going to talk about how we automate the front end code. In the back end chapter, we're going to talk about how we automate. If we have new paradigm or new approach to how we do it, part of that criteria should be how we're going to test it. And it should be discussed in that group that's focused on what's the best way for us to build the back end. So there's this uh, test automation pyramid strategy that ties together unit test automation, right. middle tier cucumber, let's say, and then Selenium UI based right. automation in, and integrated that. Uh, so you're saying, and, and all automation sort of adheres to that. Mm -hmm. So I could see that being an automation like framework. You would do some framework work and then you would do test case automation at a team level. So, so you're driving that in via the front end, back end chapters. You're building automation as part that even the automation frameworks, the plumbing, I'm not talking about the automation itself, uh, but the frameworks itself, you're, you're putting it into those chapters. That's where we're driving towards. We're okay. not there yet because we started with a QA chapter. Okay. And then we talked about having those that separate and we didn't like how that begin how it became their responsibility their responsibility so we started to bake that in and we're really pushing towards the group having the discussion of whenever we talk about something we're going to build testing it is a part of it no no i agree i mean the thing where that would fall down so where you would have a qa chapter for example is metrics 
meaning if I was collecting metrics, now yeah. now I would have back end metrics and front end metrics. So now the chapters would have to cross collate, right? Or Yeah, and we do have a little bit of that because they do need to like a common dashboard. That. But the but the but the thing that we found is that the likelihood of us having one tool to rule them all for automation across front end and back end is you, you you end up paying a price. So that's a trade off for you. It's I mean you can have you can roll tools in together so that they have common like a common framework, common reporting, a common test case format that's feeding it. Agreed. So that's reusable. But I get what you're saying. You're saying I, I still want this uniqueness. What am I gonna amplify? I'm gonna amplify goodness from a back end perspective and goodness thoroughness from a front right. end. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I was just curious. But again, let's get back on point. It's whatever we're doing, there's these technical story streams, uh, and you just feed them into the backlog, and then we merge it, and we figure out what the teams are doing. Okay. Right. I, I, I buy that. That's what we were doing as well. Uh, we, we actually fed in what we did. I'll use iContact as an example. Uh, Mary, you know Mary. Mm-hmm. She, she would feed technology stories into David, for example. and then So David owned. He owned the architectural backlog, and he would merge it. But but Pete, folks, other folks, other chapters were contributing stuff mm-hmm. to that backlog, and it worked pretty well. How did we do? How did we do on this topic, Josh? I think we did pretty good. Did it meet? This was something you're you're sort of grappling with here. Did it did it did it resonate with what you're doing here? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've been happy with it. It, it. it you know, as usual, we end up reluctantly aligning on things. I mean, this is this is actually an important topic because I think people. The one so let's wrap up with anti patterns. I see folks that don't articulate them at all. They sort of like let it happen, or which means it likely doesn't happen. Likely it doesn't, or it inconsistently happens. So, you know, there was a guy that fought with me. I think when I was writing my PO book, because he wanted it to be separate. He wanted this separate backlog for technology stuff, and I was I was fine with it being separate. But I said you have to merge it at some point mm-hmm. from a business point of view. Otherwise, no one's going to want to invest in it. You're not going to have the trade off discussions. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Is uh, you know I may, I would make the recommendation to, to at some point throw them all together, and and then flow it. Uh, but then so many folks they look at backlogs as being just functional, and then magic happens with everything else that you need to do. Yeah. And and I just I've never seen that work. I want to make it visible. Now the stories themselves. I'm not saying they have to look the same, like we said. And you may have to augment the product owner. Uh, with another, you know, type or a partner or something like that. But I think that I think that's the pattern that works pretty, that works best. Cool. How do people? How do we wrap this sucker up, Josh? How do we wrap it up? Well, we talk about how, people, how they find us. But we've been, we've and had we've a, transformed into you found us, find us again. You found you found us, but, find us again. But maybe there's other channels that you didn't know you could find us on. So we are in iTunes. Reviews are insanely helpful. What good reviews do for us is they help us bubble up towards the top on searches so that way we can begin to reach so other more people. people. So other people hear us? Other people hear us. So How, can, other than like, you know, Claude in... Other than our wives. Well, did you make your wife... I make my wife listen to this all the time. Um, usually when I'm editing it at night, she hears she, it and she, she chuckles. It. She chuckles. I thought you were yeah. gonna say she screams. And no, no, she room. does not. She screams. No. So, so find us. Get us feedback. Uh, do do reviews. Please do. Uh, we just got some feedback the other day. I don't want to divulge it yet, but someone someone teed up a topic for us. Yeah. 
And so we, I love it when people tee up topics. So give us topics. Uh, the other thing is our sound quality. In the last Metacast, we've upgraded our technology. So right before that, one of the things that motivated us is people were telling us that our, our sound quality basically sucked. <laughs> and we agreed sort of with that. So we upgraded. We took action. So we took constructive feedback. But on the flip side, if you like the sound quality now, tell us that we're doing... Oh, so now you're okay. Because in the last podcast, you were like, I don't want to know. Don't don't tell us. And now that someone said it was good, now you want all the praise. I don't want to pray, but I want to... It sounds... Have you noticed that there's a tendency in Agile teams for people that they, they skew towards constructive criticism and they don't <laughs> always give you positive feedback? Yeah. So what I'm saying, if you have it, share that as well. We don't mind positive feedback. We don't mind it. That's, yeah, that's all good. I'm saying. Okay, I can not, buy that. Okay, I'm not good. asking for it. You're not begging. You're just saying... I'm just saying. If you've got it, we'll take it. Yeah. So, for Bob Galen. And Josh Anderson. Shake. And bake. Take care, y'all.